Thank you so much, everyone, for, for leading us into worship this morning. Thank you, Children's Choir. Thank you, Teen Choir. Thank you, Worship Team. Thank you, everyone, for ministering to us in song this morning. Well, today has been a special day. The Lord is blessed, and things have gone very smoothly. The first service, this is our first Sunday, to have two services and. At least from what they've told me, it's gone really smoothly so far. So we give the, the Lord all the praise and glory for that. Maybe they're just keeping the bad news uh, from me this morning so that I can preach here in this very moment. But from my perspective, it has gone very well, and the Lord has been kind in that regard. We had a great crowd in the first service this morning, and we're looking forward to our time together now. I was joking with them. I said, y'all pray for me because this service is estimated to be about an hour, an hour and ten minutes, and I'm used to about a two-hour worship service. And so I've got to figure out how to preach in the, to the, that format. Thankfully, the Lord gave grace, and he blessed that. But now I've got freedom, so get ready to get, make yourself comfortable, and we're going to be here for a long time. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Take your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 2 this morning, Nehemiah chapter 2, and our focus this morning will be on verses 9 through 20, Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 9 through 20, and our title of the message this morning is When Reality Sets In. When reality sets in. So let's find our place in Nehemiah chapter 2, and we'll read the text before us. And I want us to actually begin in, in verse 11. As we come to the end of our message, we will back up to verse 9, but we'll add that in at that point. So let's pick up in verse 11 and read God's word together. The word of God reads it says, So when I came to Jerusalem and was there three days, then I arose in the night, Nehemiah is speaking. And he says, and I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one in which I rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate or the dung gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down and its gates, which were burned with fire. Then I went on the fountain gate, went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. Then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. Then I said to them, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us arise up and build. Then they set their hands to this good work. There's always a but. In verse 19 we see, But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. But you 
have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Well, this is God's Word. As we come to the Word of God this morning, again, the message title is this, When Reality Sets In. When Reality Sets In. And the reality is that whenever the Lord begins to work, whenever revival and renewal takes place personally or corporately, you can take it to the bank. Something is going to happen. And what is that something? It's opposition. Whenever opportunity begins to arise, whenever doors begin to open, opposition and strife, or you could say challenges, will begin to emerge and they will begin to cripple and begin to affect the advance of whatever it is that applies into our personal lives or our, our church life. Here as we come to Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 9 through 20, challenges are certainly the theme of this passage, challenges. And there's a key principle for us right off the cuff, and it's this, there is no such thing as opportunity without opposition. There is no such thing without, as opportunity without opposition. For years, my home church as a little boy growing up had an annual Thanksgiving supper. We were in the downtown inner city of Birmingham area, and on the, every Tuesday before the Thursday of Thanksgiving, it was just known. It had happened for 30 years or more that there was a, a Thanksgiving meal free to anyone who wanted to come. And so you can just imagine um, when you announce that kind of thing, everybody, anybody's up for a good free lunch and a free meal, and that's what it was for. And they would come, and it was a major outreach effort for our church. Over a thousand people, anywhere from a thousand to fifteen hundred people would come through the door. And it was designed in such a way so that we could regulate the crowds that they would go into down one hallway and into a major area and they would hear a gospel presentation in a unique form. Sometimes it would be in the form of a brief video dramatizing the gospel. Sometimes it would be individuals standing before them sharing their testimony or giving the gospel in, in just straight out of the scriptures. But it was designed to give people a Bible, to give them a gospel track, to help allow them to hear the gospel and then to receive a meal and just as a real special opportunity. But when I began to begin my ministry as an assistant pastor there on staff, my, my father would always remind the staff in the weeks and months leading up to the annual Thanksgiving supper, something that should be so good and something should be so wonderful, something that should be unifying. It never failed. He would always say, men, as we pray, be praying that the Lord would not allow us to have or experience opposition. And here's what is, was absolutely amazing, is that the opposition never came from without, not from the city. It never came from over there or out there or whatever. It always came, always came from within. To be able to pull off a, a volunteer army and an undertaking of that size, a lot of planning and a lot of strategy would take place. And inevitably, without fail, people would get their feelings hurt, or people would become territorial, or donors who decided they wanted to have a role would want to come in and start taking ownership and say, well, we want to give our gift, but we want it to look like this, and we want to, and on and on and on, you can imagine it going. And we always needed wisdom and always needed help to know how to manage not only the gospel opportunity, but the inevitable opposition that seemed to always come. And every time my father would begin that kind of guidance for the staff, it would come off as a little bit of negative, a negative Nancy, if you will, a little bit kind of pessimistic. And inevitably, without fail, 
He was right. And he prepared us. We would be ready for it. And because we were ready for it, because of the gospel opportunity, we were not sidetracked, like I'm sure the flesh and the devil and many other things, many well-meaning brothers and sisters in Christ, we were not sidetracked over the opposition or the problems, the bumps in the road that came along that presented themselves. Church family, I want you to know, anytime you begin to experience God's hand at work in your life, whether it's personal revival or renewal, you can expect to face opposition. More than likely, the opposition will come from you. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, as D.L. Moody once said, the worst enemy I've got, D.L. Moody speaking, was the man who I shave every single day, the man whose face that I look at in the mirror, the flesh, ourself. So many times we are the ones who disobey God's clear leading in our life. So it's not always from without in the sense of finding a face or a name, but whenever the Spirit of God's at work in our lives, lines are being drawn. You decide that you want to obey the Lord, you hunger and you desire for the Lord to work, and He gives you a vision of that. Make no mistake about it. Your boss is going to come to you and say, hey, we need you to pick up this extra shift. We, we need you to increase your responsibilities here at work. Or the Lord leads you to minister in an opportunity in an area in the church. Make no mistake about it. There's going to be counteracting discouragements that seem to be opportunities or things that come from without that will try to prevent you from following through with the lordship of Christ or obedience to Christ. Once we look at Nehemiah chapter 2, what we see in the life of Nehemiah is that Nehemiah has been broken and burdened for some time for the name of God. We saw last time together he received by God's remarkable hand upon him and the king and the whole situation that God had turned his heart. And so Nehemiah is coming home to Jerusalem, home in the sense that he's never been to Jerusalem He's only ever heard about it. He's lived in exile from birth. It's, est- it's believed to adulthood now at this point. And now we see Nehemiah returning to Jerusalem with a plan, a vision, a drive. And no doubt he's dreaming about the finished product. Leaders dream, don't they? They can see the end. Part of what leadership is is vision. You can see things before they're even there. You live in a world that in one sense doesn't exist. You see the blueprints like an architect who can see what could be and what's there. Where, where others say, what? You see what there? And you say, yeah, you don't see that? It's, it's there. It's, it looks like this. And, and it, it goes like that. And others may see it and they say, I, I don't see at all what you're talking about. That was Nehemiah. When others would only saw the rubbles and, and the rocks and the ruins, Nehemiah saw the finished product to the glory of God. And then he comes to Jerusalem and reality sets in. All that seems to be just going so well is not going to be just smooth without any problems. And so as we come to these verses, the first section, it breaks down very naturally into three sections. And the first section is in verses 11 through 16. And this speaks to us, recounts for us Nehemiah's first steps as he comes to Jerusalem, what he does and the initial actions that he took. The second section is in verses 17 and 18 and recounts how Nehemiah begins to speak to the people and how he enlists the people of God, calling them up, raising them up, and their response to that call And then the third section is in verses 19 and 20, and it describes how the enemies of God, 
the enemies of the people of God, the enemies of Nehemiah, describes how they withstand and begin to offer up their vocal opposition to Nehemiah. So we'll frame our thoughts this morning around these three headings. Number one, Nehemiah was challenged by the reality. Nehemiah was challenged by the reality or the ruins. Secondly, we'll find that Nehemiah challenged the people of God to rise up and to build. He challenged the people of God to rise up and to build. And then the third heading that we'll look at this morning is this. Nehemiah was challenged by the enemy. So our theme is challenges, the challenges against the work of God. So first of all, I want you to note this morning, Nehemiah was challenged by the reality of the situation, the ruins. We could see everything going so smoothly. He's had 1,500 miles, estimated two to three months to dream on horseback as he's making his way to Jerusalem. Notice with me there in the text, so I came to Jerusalem and there were three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what, God had, what my God had put into my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one which I rode. And then we see he continues to survey the, the walls, the rubble. No doubt about it, Nehemiah, before he reached Jerusalem, was dreaming. It's estimated, again, as I said a moment ago, about a 1,500-mile journey, depending on which way he went. There's two ways he could have gone as he made his way west. He could have gone straight through the desert. Had he done that, it would have been an estimated to be about 800-mile journey, two months' time. But most don't believe that's the way he went. That would have been precarious. There would have been a number of obstacles, health-wise, physiological. You get the idea. It's estimated that he went around the Fertile Crescent, and that would have taken about three months, estimated 1,500 miles by the time that he arrived. No doubt along that whole time, he's dreaming, he's planning, he's riding high, he's got an entourage, a security force, he's got the king's papers, his passports, everything is going so smoothly. At every stop along the way, as he, as he makes his meetings and his greetings with officials, all along the way of that journey, he's able to pull out the king's papers, he's able to say, I'm here on the king's business. And as King David said, the king's business requires haste. People would get out of the way or people would give him the supplies that they needed. Many commentators believe that Nehemiah wisely sent men on up ahead to begin sending supplies in advance of his coming. In fact, you'll notice we'll touch on it in a little bit. But in the text, how does he, he already seems to know the response of, and look there with me, just go ahead in the text in chapter 2, verse 9. Uh, let's see here. In Verse 16, notice the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. Let's see here. Going back up to verse 9. Then I went to the governors in the region beyond the river, and I gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. But notice verse 10. How does he know this? Verse 10. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. The idea is, is that it's believed Nehemiah sent men on up ahead to get reactions from officials. By the time he arrives, he already knows, in a sense, the state of affairs. He already begins to know what is the lay of the land, who's in charge, what, who were the power brokers, and what is their response. By the time he arrives, it's time for assessments. And there's no doubt, when he sees 
not the glorious finished product, what he's been dreaming about, but when he sees the devastation of the gates and the walls, he's reminded just how difficult this task is going to be. What we find is that he has an organized heart. He was organized. He is patient as he begins the first step of assessing the state of the walls. Proverbs chapter 23, verses 3 and 4 tells us this. Through wisdom, a house is built, and by understanding, it is established. By knowledge, the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. As Nehemiah comes, he is planning, and through wisdom, he is thinking, and he's assessing. It's estimated to be that the circumference of the city of Jerusalem, where these walls need to be built, is estimated to be anywhere from a mile and a half to two and a half miles of, of wall. As Nehemiah is viewing these broken walls and the gates that are burned, this word view gives us a little bit of insight here in the text. As he comes, this word means to examine something carefully. It's used in medical journals even today for the word probe, when someone has a wound or something that needs to be examined. The very word that's used here in the text is used even in modern-day vernacular to describe a surgeon carefully probing a wound to best know how to take the next steps of what to do here, how to, to treat it. Last night, I witnessed on a, the basketball court a gruesome injury from a young senior in high school whose leg bent away it should not bend. And it was, it was sickening. And those who immediately were responding were responding not hastily and not flippantly and not irreverently but with care, touching everything as he's sitting there in agony they probed they viewed very carefully to make sure they knew what steps were the best steps to take that's the word used here nehemiah is careful he's organized he's patient notice how our text tells us that he took three days from this journey to do that and there's value there for us friends to not go hastily into things you can imagine if this was a 1,500-mile journey that took three months, he is absolutely physiologically and spiritually worn out. And he takes moments and time to prepare his and stage his next steps. We also see here that, notice how the text tells us he, con he conducted his survey at night. He's not walking around as a running mouth telling people anything and everything. As I had a boss that used to say, a funny boss in the past, he used to say, asking ain't getting. He used to say that all the time. So bad English, but a good point. He would say, guys, you can ask, but that doesn't mean you're getting it. And I think more than likely, we were regularly asking, can we go to eat at a restaurant on lunch today? This was a landscaping crew, so we were often dying in the summertime. And he would often just say, asking ain't getting, asking ain't getting. Well, no doubt, as people see this entourage come into Jerusalem, he began to get a lot of questions. And Nehemiah is very clear that he did not just pour out his purposes and his intents and his plans. Some people would say, well, maybe he was being dishonest. Maybe when a leader isn't just being foretelling and transparent, there, there's, a, there's a matter of integrity here. No, not at all. Oftentimes, much prayer and wisdom and insight are needed to know what is, what is God, what is it you want us to do? Notice the text tells us he took this survey at night. 
And Nehemiah, as he probes carefully the walls of Jerusalem, in reality is able to see more in the dark, more in the night, than most can see in the light or in the daytime. Now, I'm not going to go on and on here, but if you looked at a circular nature and a large oval of the city of the walls of Jerusalem, and I'm pointing to your west coming to the east, Nehemiah, the text tells us, he picks up there at the valley gate. It says there in verse 13, I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent gate. And if you'll notice my hands here, and I'll kind of draw it out for you. From the valley gate to the serpent well to the refuse gate, and I viewed the walls of Jerusalem. And he describes going to a point to where he can't come in further. He has to get off his horse. He surveys and he looks around all the way almost to the eastern point from where he started on the west. And then he backtracks his way. So he goes counterclockwise, and he doesn't, he doesn't view the whole of the city or the walls. He just goes about the, the southern half, counterclockwise, west to east. And he does all of this at night. This is the price of leadership, one commentator said. Many leaders are planning and praying and doing their work at night while others sleep because there's sometimes it's the wisest way to do it, the best way to go about it. I often find my best study comes in the night when everyone's asleep. There's no interruptions. The phones can't ping or ding. There's no, there's no little ones coming asking you to do anything that you love to do. It's often the case to do your work early, early in the morning or late at night. And that's what the text tells us, exactly what Nehemiah, what he did. Notice his survey revealed and confirmed the facts. Chapter 1, verse 3, remember this whole thing begins with the question. When he asked the question of his brother Hanani, and Hanani told him the facts. Go back with me, chapter 1, verse 3, when he said, And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Here now in chapter 2, verse 13, Nehemiah is realizing, he's confirming what he has heard, but now his eyes see, in the language of 1 John, what our eyes have seen and our, ha- our ears have heard, and now his hands are handling the reality of all of these things. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 3 reminds us, he who hears a matter before, he who answers a matter before he hears it, it is a folly and a shame to him. There's a principle there. Just in the same way in our interpersonal relationships, we should be cautious and careful. You know what it's like, parents, when one child comes to you to tell you what the other one did, and you would be dumb. You would be foolish not to then begin an interview process to learn the facts of the situation. But what is so obvious to parenting, we often, as the very parents, can miss in our interpersonal relationships at work or with our older brothers and sisters in Christ or physical brothers and sisters. That principle is exactly what Nehemiah is doing. He's heard, but he's not coming into the city preaching. He's not coming rolling out the blueprints. Now it's time to cautiously and wisely and patiently assess. And what he finds and what his survey reveals is the confirmation of the facts. He finds a defeated people. He finds a city that has a history of defeat. He sees a city that has a history of failure. Others have tried to do this. What do you think you're doing, Nehemiah? Zerubbabel came. Ezra came. Others have attempted to begin grassroots projects to rebuild. It's all been done before. It's all been tried before. What do you think you're 
doing. Number one, Nehemiah was challenged by the reality of the situation, the reality of the ruins. Secondly, I want us to note this morning in verses 17 through 20, Nehemiah challenged the people. He challenged the people to rise up and build. And his leadership is done in such a way that there's no explaining this apart from the work of God, the Spirit of God. Even the very best of leaders are still men at their very best. And so I don't want us to come to this passage thinking that this is Vince Lombardi. This is Winston Churchill, who I'm going to quote from in just a moment. It cannot be explained by that alone. You can only explain what Nehemiah does here, the timing, the place, the people, the provisions, the moment, the conversation, the let's do this, and their response of ownership and buy-in, let's arise and build. It's a classic leadership principle that says this, leadership is getting people to do it, do a work, and it's their idea. It's their initiative. And we're not talking about manipulation. It's saying they buy in in such a way, it's as if they've always thought of doing this. This is, this is it. This is the plan. It's so obvious. Don't you see it, Nehemiah? Yes, I see it. This is, this is what we need to do. Well, number two, Nehemiah challenged the people to rise up and build. Notice in verse 17, he says this, Then I said to them, You see the distress. Now notice here, so much wisdom in how he's talking. You see the distress that we are in. More about that in just a moment. How Jerusalem lies in waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God which had been good to me, the hand of my God which had been upon me, and also of the king and his words that he had spoken to me. Are you serious? You mean King, you mean king Artaxerxes said that to you? Provided that for you? Gave that maniac? This must be of the Lord. This has to be of the Lord. Nehemiah says, I told them of the king and his words and all that he has spoken to me. And these soldiers are all here at his provision. So they said, let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to do this good work. Nehemiah comes in not preaching. And there's a place for preaching. We'll see more about that in, as in, in Nehemiah chapter 8. But he comes in prayerfully, cautiously, patiently. They see all of this. They see him taking the time to seek to understand. And there's so much. I pray that I don't get off in landmines this morning because there's so many practical things that we could go. But I'll just say this. Take the time to seek to understand. And friends, you will see your relationships go to another level that the Lord can use when you simply take the time for empathy. Take the time to ask questions. Take the time to assess. You come into a situation and you start telling them how they can change it, even what they need to hear. Don't be surprised when, when you haven't earned it. Don't be surprised when people don't want to hear it, even when what you have to say is right and good. We see him come and just chill and pray Ask questions. There's so much here that I think is happening that, that is not in the text, but there's no doubt Nehemiah is walking around in the same way he's probing the walls. He's having conversations with people, just learning about them and learning their stories and getting to understand 
and earning the right to stand before them as we see him here and give this resounding corporate us-we language a call to rise up. It's reminiscent of Winston Churchill on May 10th, 1940. Winston Churchill was elected as the Prime Minister of England. And if you don't know who Winston Churchill is, he's a classic in a study of just all-time leadership. And what's so funny about Winston Churchill is he looks like Humpty Dumpty who sat on a wall. To look at Winston Churchill is to look at someone who is not glamorous. It's to look at someone who's not tall and handsome. It's to look at someone who not necessarily, he looks like a curmudgeon. If you look at pictures of Winston Churchill, he's just such an interesting guy. But listen listen here carefully. In, In history, as they're being assaulted shortly after his being elected as prime minister, it would be his responsibility to find a way to unite England, Great Britain, and all the, uh, the territories that they had control over in some type of unique way. And before he could figure it out, they began to be assaulted by the fury of the Third Reich, the wrath of Adolf Hitler. And night after night, the bombs would begin to pummel English cities during the, what was known as the Blitz. Churchill's voice would be heard on radio. They had to develop what was known as the bunkers, a place that was vastly underground, deep underground, to where he could every night go into a studio and speak with brick walls surrounding him deep into the the heart of the earth. And he would speak into the radio. And every night he would speak resolve to the people of England, broadcasting his stubborn refusal to yield and at the same time rallying the people of England with a sense of resolve to never give up. Here, here's an excerpt from one of his most famous speeches. And this is what he says. He says, Even though large tracts of Europe and many old and famous states have fallen or may fall into the grip of the Gestapo and all the odious apparatus of Nazi rule, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and the oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. And we shall fight in the hills. And we shall never surrender. And if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated or starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until in God's good time the new world with all of its power and might steps forth to rescue and the liberation of the old. I have nothing for you people but to offer you but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties And so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say that this moment was their finest hour. One year later, Churchill told President Roosevelt, February 9th, 1941, give us the tools and we'll get the job done. Now you may say, I don't care about Winston Churchill. That's fine. You may say, I don't care about history. In fact, I hate history. Who cares, number one? That's fine. 
You can say, I don't care about any of that. Here's the point we're trying to make. It takes men leading people to get the job done. Men who can get people to say, there is a cause. And I will just tell you, church, greater than the cause of defending ourselves from, in this sense, that we're not, William, we're not Winston Churchill and the Gestapo's not bombing us. But friends, listen, we are under the assault of the flesh, the devil. We are in a spiritual battle every single day, all day. And the weapons of our warfare are not physical. They are spiritual. This is the type of assault that we are in. And as Nehemiah stands before his people, this is his moment of rallying the people. He's no longer in the prayer closet. The battle's not invisible. It's now very visible. Nehemiah comes and he identifies with his people. He challenges the people of God. Notice with me in this text, first off as a subpoint, he identifies with the people. Notice there with me in verse 17 what he doesn't do. Nehemiah doesn't come in with a finger pointed at them in any way. He doesn't say, I can't believe you. He doesn't come in and shame them. He doesn't come in and challenge their manhood. He doesn't come in and, and grill them about their inefficiencies or their lukewarmness or their apathy. And let's be clear, there is a place for that. There is a biblical, God-ordained place through preaching the Word of God through the, by the Spirit of God, by the means of God, to challenge God's people and all of those things. But that's not what Nehemiah does. God leads Nehemiah to identify wisely with his people and to win their hearts. Notice with me verse 17 when he says there, and he... he um, Verse 17, and I said to them, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in waste and its gates are burned with fire. Notice on at the end of the verse that we may no longer be a reproach. Let's be clear, Nehemiah has never been in Jerusalem. He's lived his whole life in exile. Here he comes and he takes ownership in the corporate aspect of the rubble in the ruins. Listen, there's no way you cannot respect that. Nehemiah takes ownership. What they don't know is that in the hidden place of the prayer closet is that Nehemiah has already repented of his nation's sins. He's already repented of his personal sins and he's owned his nation's sins and God has seen that and God is blessing it. Listen, the way to people's hearts is we and us, not you in me. There's a gap there. There's a, there's a gulf there. When everything is y'all or you, Nehemiah doesn't come in saying, well, I don't want to be a part of anything that's a failure. So y'all need to get your act together. And we, excuse me, y'all need to get that, the wall built. And then when it's successful and the Lord blesses it, all of a sudden he starts saying, look, hey, look what we did. From the beginning, his chips are laid clear on the table, and he says, look, this is us, this is we, this is our, and our, the hand of our God is upon us. Let us do this gracious and good work. He identifies with the people, and the people identify with him. Notice how they respond in verse 18. So they responded, they said, let us rise up and build. And then they set their hands to this good Work. So much there that we just don't have time to unpack. It is a good work, isn't it? 
Anything related to God is, is a good thing. His work, his kingdom, his church, he's building his church, and it is a good work. But notice their response is one very much the principle of ownership, the principle of need. What you pray for in salvation and in sanctification is that people will see their need, that they will say, what must I do to be saved? Like the Philippian jailer does in the gospel account there in Acts where Paul has been preaching and he reaches the point where he says, what must I do to be saved? That's it. That's it. Seeing the need, seeing your need for Christ. But it's the same way in service for Christ. What must we do? We must, we got to fix this thing. We didn't see it before, but now we see it. We got to do this. You're right. Let's do it. What we're describing here is a gift of God, church. And I think I'm losing some of you, so I'm going to try to find a way to get you back. This is something you cannot take for granted. Not every church has this. Churches can go decades without synergy and one heart and one mind and one spirit. And Ichabod is on the door of the church. And it's been there for years until somebody comes in and says, hey, the walls need to be rebuilt. It's a gift. You say, well, how is it a gift? I'll give you one illustration. We heard from Moses in the book of Deuteronomy this morning. Moses didn't get to experience this. His whole, the world's what's considered outside of the life of Christ, the world's greatest leader, Moses did not get to experience this unity and this, let's go into the land of Canaan. No, he had to navigate the people of God through valleys and mountaintops and valleys and mountaintops and valleys. But it wasn't like this. This is a gift. This is the work of the Spirit when God's people say, let's rise up and build. And that's not always correlated to a building. That's why I'm glad I, we can preach this and not be in the middle of any kind of building project so we can just look at the text for what it is and ask the Lord to spiritually apply it to our, to our hearts and lives. The Word of God is clear. Can two walk together unless they be in agreement? We're not talking about absolute uniformity. We're talking about unanimity, having the same values and worldview and having one heart, one mind, and one spirit in the Lord. I think it's been estimated that two people working together in unity can do the, the output of that synergy is the, the, the level of five people. Two people working together in unity, and the synergism that is there is the output of five. I have in my notes that uh, the, estimate, the estimation that was given in one commentary that said this, that one horse can pull an average of six tons, but two horses together can pull an average of 32 tons. The output of unity and synergy, synergy and teamwork all happening. And then when the Lord is in something, friends, it's blessed. And I'll just tell you, the gates of hell won't be able to prevail against it. This is Nehemiah's moment. He's looking them in the eyes. He's speaking to their hearts. His motivation and his drive is not for him or them. God can replace him at any time. And the work, this work is so great and so valuable, and God is so worth it. Everyone on the, uh, there's not one person in this project that can't be replaced. Jimmy may be the best at the trowel work there is, but if Jimmy falls over with a heart attack, then Billy's going to have to step up to the plate, and God's work is going to have to continue. Sam may be the best wheelbarrow, the strongest guy in the lot. But listen, none of this is based upon any personality or worker or anyone. It's based upon the glory of God alone. 
Nehemiah rallies the people. This is the work of God. This is the Spirit of God using the means of a man like Nehemiah. Very quickly and lastly, number three, Nehemiah was challenged by the enemy. Notice there with me in verses, uh, we're going to go back to verse 9 and 10. And here it's in verses 9 and 10 that we have the entrance that were introduced to, beginning in verse 10, Sanballat. Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, when they heard of this news, they were deeply grieved. They were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. This is hilarious. Now look with me down in verse 19. You say, what's hilarious? I just love the fact that God's enemies are grieved. Let us be delighted. Let us be, let thoughts thrill our minds when the gospel advances, when God's kingdom spreads, and the enemies of God are deeply disturbed. That's something we can live with right there. Now go down to verse 19. When they heard of it, now their approach moves from being deeply grieved. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem, that's the triumvirate there, Geshem the Arab, heard of it, they laughed at us and they despised us. And they said, what is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? So I answered them and I said to them, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build, but you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Again, remember how we opened our message this morning. There is no such thing as opportunity without opposition. One commentator says this, There is no opportunity from heaven without opposition from hell. If you think that walking with Christ is a path that is strong with flowers, then think again. Jesus Christ warned his disciples that the object which would grace their necks would not be the garland of the Olympiad, but the cross. Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Friends, this is where the rubber meets the road. The biblical gospel doesn't promise you health, wealth, and blessing. It doesn't promise you a better, smoother, earthly experience until you make it to heaven to fly around on angels' wings and play little harps. Things that the Scripture never tells us and promises that we will do those things. And yet, most average people that you meet believe this and think this. They come to Jesus thinking that everything will become better that he has a wonderful plan for their life, and only bonuses and promotions exist from here on out. But friends, I want to tell you, that's not Christianity. And if you want proof of that, look no further than your Lord crucified on the cross. Sometimes it's blood, sweat, and tears. More often than not, it's the enemies of the cross that seem to outnumber those who are friendly to the cross And friends, we cannot live and move and have our being with eyes of sight alone. Faith versus fear. That is the reality of the Christian. We move in faith. Nehemiah here is moving in faith. And as he's moving towards this opportunity, as he's rallying the people of God, don't think for a second that the three stooges are not far off, ready to use ridicule, scorn, and mockery to bring God's people back into their 
place. And I just want to hit pause there for a second. If you know of someone that regularly is not only sarcastic, but they're only ever sarcastic, or constantly mocking, or ridiculing, or scorning, don't be deceived to the fact that that is a tactic, a sinful tactic, a tactic of Satan to discourage you in the will and the work of God, to keep you in a sense down, under control, to know your place. The people of God for far too long have been under the influence of Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, and their weapons are not major. They are simply mock. They're not missiles and guns and those types of things. They are mockery, ridicule, and scorn. Now, they bring those weapons to play on Nehemiah. Real quick, we'll see more about these guys later on in our study, but Samballat was the governor of Samaria, estimated to be within a 12-mile distance of Jerusalem. Tobiah ruled the kingdom of Ammon, if you remember, as the Ammonites were the sons of that Lot's daughters had through incestuous relations with Lot. Geshem and his sons ruled the Arab nations of the surrounding area. So these are powerful enemies who have God's people under their thumbs. Now notice with me here in the text that there are two forms of opposition that they utilize. And as we look at these, I have no doubt that in your mind and in your thinking, in your memory, you will think of experiences that you have had that are very similar to these as well. The first way they utilize this is public ridicule. Notice verse 19. They mocked us and they despised us. Then the second way they do it is in personal intimidation as well as in verse 19 to Nehemiah. What is this thing that you think you are are doing? So they seek to use public ridicule to put Nehemiah in his place, just like they have put God's people in his place, inducing fear. Let's not underestimate this, friends. What is the reason why you don't share the gospel more than you do? It's fear. It's fear of man. Let me change that finger from this to here. What is the reason that LeGrand Lamb doesn't share the gospel more than what I do? I believe it. I'm not afraid to preach it right here. I'll preach it right here all day long. But can I do it with the same courage and boldness with the waitress at the restaurant? Can, can I look her in the eye and say, hey, Sally, try to look for the name. Hey, listen, we're about to pray for our meal. Is there any way that we can pray for you today and say, Lord, would you take this and give me an opportunity to share the gospel with Sally? Or when I leave her a gracious tip and I, based upon the conversation that we have, and if I leave a gospel track, Lord, would you bless the sowing and the tilling of the ground and the conversation that's, that's happened in my efforts to begin the gospel conversation and the invitation to church, would you bless those things for your glory? Why don't I do that more often? I'll tell you, it's fear. It's fear or self-love. I don't think about others. I just think about me and that type of thing. Many other examples that we could give. Why don't we share the gospel? It's fear, public ridicule, intimidation. Now, as we wrap up the message, notice Nehemiah's six-part response there in verse 20. Nehemiah is not intimidated. Again, when the fear of God rules your hearts, when you're living quorum Deo before the presence of God, Secondary fears, real fears, lesser fears, the type of fears that bring a trap or a prison or a snare, really lose their meaning because we've settled it. We fear him more than we fear them. And Nehemiah models this. He responds in a very succinct way with a short economy of words. Number one, this is God's work. This isn't my work. 
So let's just hit pause there briefly. Nehemiah exhibits boldness, confidence. Why? Because confidence and boldness comes from being supported. Many of you could say you've been in a work situation where you've been in your job, and your boss, who gave you your job description, who, who told you this is your job, this is what you're supposed to do, but in reality, over the course of time, you realize that your boss is undermining you. You're fulfilling the duties that were given to you. You're doing what the task requires. But, but you're then all of a sudden being punished for it. You begin to realize over time that you're not supported like you thought you were, you were being supported. Where does confidence come from? Confidence comes when you have people backing you. We have people say, we're with you on this. Well, Nehemiah has it. He, he's got it this way with Artaxerxes. Here's the papers. He's got it this way because the calling is from God. This is the work of God. That's why Nehemiah is not just some type of superhero and expert in leadership. It's because he has God's support. He has God's hand upon him. And he's able to look them in the eye and he says this, this is God's work, not my work. Second, we are his slaves. We are his servants. And thirdly, this work will be accomplished with his power. Not yours, not mine. He's led us this far, and we have confidence that he will bless this. This work will be showered with his power. Then notice how he directs it right back at them. He says, you have no portion here. In other words, no property inside the city. And they didn't. Geshem is of the Arabs. Tobiah ruled the kingdom of Ammon. Samballat lives 12 miles away as the governor over Samaria. But the hint here is that these men are coming, exacting taxes from the people of God, and there's nothing they can do about it. If these walls are built and the city of Jerusalem maintains some type of stability and it becomes a people and a city, then their power and their money sources are going to begin to be dried up. That's why they were deeply grieved back in verse 9. Grieved, disturbed to see a man coming to inquire of the people of God. Fifthly, he tells them, you have no right. You have no claim or authority over Jerusalem. And then sixthly, you have no memorial or literally rendered you have no place of worship here when we restore these walls when we restore the temple when we we restore this city you will have no place of worship within these community of believers here we see nehemiah standing up by the hand of god by the spirit of god facing the challenges of opposition well, much more about those men later. We will see a lot of insight in how to deal in interpersonal ways with those who are seemingly bent on stopping the work of God. We'll just take it right out of the text and ask the Lord to apply it to our hearts and lives. Very quickly, I want to make some points of application. We'll be done today. I want to make it on the church level, the leadership level, and the Christological level, or the Christ level, you could say. First off, as we apply this text, I just want to say this. The Lord is going to have to bless the teaching and preaching of His Word. Even in these points of application, they're not meant to be comprehensive or to touch and to minister to every heart. But the Lord knows how, by the Spirit of God, to take His Word and to do exactly that. Church, we don't have the rubbles of Jerusalem to build this morning, but we do have a good work, don't we? It's been happening this very moment. It's been happening this very day. It happened early, early this morning is... The men prepared to go to the jail this morning and to take the gospel out of these four walls and to take, the, take it into the public square. 
It happened very early. It happened during the Sunday school hour as there were multiple classes taking place. Downstairs as Mike Yance taught the Word of God. In here as Pat Lett taught the Word of God. Down the hallway as uh, my, uh, Ryan Corker taught the Word of God. And on further down the hallway as Laura Simmons in the nursery and Charity Lamb in the children's wing and others, the ladies praying at 9 o'clock. What are the walls that need to be rebuilt here in Kingston, Tennessee? Well, there's an aspect that the work that we have is a good work. And we work with confidence, as verse 20 tells us, the God of heaven. When the devil is discouraging you as you think about preparing your lessons or you've had a full work schedule and a full week, and then you know on Tuesday night you've got to go to Celebrate Recovery and you don't feel like going to Celebrate Recovery. You're taking the meal and you don't feel like taking the meal. Or you're going to be preaching the word and you don't feel like doing that or you get the idea. Or you teach in Grace Equip. Or you're taking the gospel. You have a gospel appointment. Or last Sunday when we had our intentional ministry Sunday evening where we take a whole month and we plan all month. And then the time comes and the reality is, is I don't feel like sharing the gospel with my neighbor that I don't like anyway. I just don't feel like it. A lot of emphasis on feel there. What has God, what I've tried before and it hasn't worked. Why should I try again? Verse 20, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. And I just want to give us a quick application here. Church, just, just listen to me. Do, you, do we want God's blessing? And I think the resounding answer to that is yes. I'm going to say that again. Do we want God's blessing at Grace Church? Then listen to this. We must do God's work, his way, for his glory, and at a time that we can't prescribe, it may be in glory. It may be at the judgment seat of Christ, but we will get his blessing. When we do his work for his way, God's work, God's way for his glory, confidence in that his name will be magnified and glorified, it is his delight to bring the blessing. So much more I want to say there, but may the church, may we be bold in the taking of the in the living of the gospel, in the taking of the gospel, in our everyday living, in our public square, in our everyday lives, the church level. So much more. Time is running out. I want to say there, but I'm going to move on. Secondly, the leadership level. And we'll start trying to emphasize some of these things. Nehemiah is the quintessential book on leadership biblically. There are so many things to extract and to see. And I'm not going to spend all of our time doing it. I'm thinking about doing just a standalone message that we go back and look at it with an angle of leadership. But I'll just simply point out a couple of things we see in these, this passage about leadership. And may the Lord help us to apply it to our lives. The first one is this. Godly people respond to godly leadership. Godly people respond to godly leadership. Notice, just take note here. And I promise you, this is straight out of the text. There's no agenda. I'm not from Kingston, Tennessee. So I was almost hesitant to not even give this because I was thinking some people may misunderstand the heart of the pastor. But I'm just going to be faithful to the text. Notice how Nehemiah ain't from here. And we as Southerners, and I say that as a Southerner who's just a second cousin down south and from Birmingham, Alabama, we as Southerners tend to think that way. We can tend to think in the sense of insiders and outsiders. And I'll just say it, it's true. We think that way. In Appalachian culture and Southern culture, we think and we can begin to view people of, you're from here. I knew your uncle and your dad and your granddad, but, but you're not from here. Where are your people from? And that kind of thing. And I say that as one. 
But Nehemiah comes in outside the community. So why should anybody listen to Nehemiah? It's because he's a godly man. He's sent by God. It's not about Nehemiah. It's about God. Godly people respond to godly leadership, and their response was a collective, let us rise up and and build. As we look at Nehemiah, we see that he's a spiritual and practical leader and that God blesses it. You can tell, one commentator said, you can tell if if you're a leader by turning around and saying, is anyone following? I think there's truth to that. Secondly, a good leader sees what others miss. A good leader sees what others miss. If we could summarize this in one word, I would say perceptiveness perceptiveness. This is a gift. This is something the Lord has to give us, is to see things the way they are. Nehemiah, when he asked that question in chapter 1, was perceptive through hearing, and in chapter 2, he is perceptive through seeing. You can say it like this. It's a mantra I've said for years, learned in leadership myself. To have insight, you need to be on site. To have insight, you need to be on site. Many are the keyboard warriors and those who are the experts from afar, but you, it doesn't matter what the situation is, Nehemiah had to get on site to see the reality of the situation and ask the Holy Spirit for insight to know what is the next best course of action. Secondly, I've got just two final ones on, on applying this in the sense of leadership is this. Godly leadership overcomes the fear that paralyzes others. Godly leadership overcomes the very real and present fear that paralyzes so many. In fact, I would say this is maybe one of the distinguishing things that separates leadership from just about anything else. It's the one who has the ability to be perceptive and to speak up like David who looks at his brothers and looks at Saul and looks around and says, sees Goliath blaspheming this Gentile pagan blaspheming the, the God of heaven. And he says, guys, is there not a cause? Is there not a cause? And the answer is there absolutely is a cause. But it requires overcoming the fear that paralyzes others. And then lastly, on this leadership application, godly leaders take initiative. Godly leaders take initiative. Obviously more that we could say there. I want to conclude this morning with our final point of application here on the Christological level, on the Christ level. There are some similarities of Nehemiah's example that point us to the work of Christ. And I'm not going to try to overdo this, but I just want to point on the low-hanging fruit. I don't want to make something a type that's not a type. There's much error in that. But notice how our text last week and this week models for us and shows us how Nehemiah left the palace at Shushan to come and to help God's people by identifying with them in their affliction, in their reproach, and in their ruin. Sound familiar, doesn't it? That's exactly what Christ did. The Lord Jesus left heaven, left the throne room of heaven, the fellowship of the Father and the Holy Spirit, as our young people learned on Wednesday, thinking about just the work of the Holy Spirit and the triune Godhead. Christ left all of those things, and he entered into a cruel, fallen, sinful world that would mock him, attack him, despise him, and crucify him. And he did it willingly, and he did it joyfully for us. Secondly, on this level of point of application, Nehemiah bore the affliction of God's people, and in the same way, Jesus bore our affliction and our reproach. Romans 15.3, For even Christ did not please himself. 
But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Friends, I just want to remind all of us this morning that if you are in Christ, you were once one who blasphemed Christ. Your sin hung him on the cross. If you are someone here this morning who has not trusted in Christ or placed your faith in Christ, I want to remind you that you are a reproach to a thrice holy God like we once were before we were saved. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says this, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The beauty of the gospel is this, that he didn't leave us there. That he came and entered our broken, sinful world to become sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 for, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. We see hints of the gospel Hints of the coming Messiah by these very actions that Nehemiah himself has taken in our text. Well, may the Lord be pleased to add his blessing and to apply the teaching and preaching of his word this morning. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, again, we humble ourselves before you and we pray that you would take your word, the teaching and preaching of Scripture, and Father, that as we just study the passages fresh and anew, that in our homes, in our individual walks with you, in our marriages, in our roles and the ways that we serve our church. Father, would you give us by your spirit renewal, revival, rebuilding. Again, Father, would you give us renewal, revival, rebuilding. And Father, when your spirit shows us the areas that are starting to deteriorate in our relationships, in our gospel witness, would you give us, Lord, the ability to humbly confess and repent, to overcome fear, to step forward in faith, to walk in the light of the power of the gospel, the finished work of Christ, and, Father, to have that confidence and that joy that only the gospel can give and bring. Father, we have something today that Nehemiah didn't have, and that's the Holy Spirit of God. Holy Spirit, would you lead us into your truth? Help us to honor you and worship you. And Father, help us to follow the pattern that you have guided in all of these things. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.